Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, Mayor Triple Threat, uh, defending a posture she's taken to encrypt police radio transmissions. Encrypt police radio transmissions so media agencies, for example, like CWB Chicago, wouldn't be able to hear police radio transmissions in real time and report on what's happening on the streets in something approximating real time. There would be some sort of delay. Yeah, 30 Yesterday, minute delay. They, she, she claims it'd be 30 minutes. Yesterday, she uh, defended the policy position. It's about officer safety. If, if it's unencrypted and there's access, there's no way to control criminals who are going to also get access, listen in, and adjust their criminal behavior um, in uh, response to the information that's being communicated. And if I mean, there's one thing that Lori Lightfoot is known, it's for promoting officer safety. Oh, of course. I mean, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Because, you know, when I see the bad guys, Dan, like last night there was a shooting, Ashland and, and Lawrence, a 17-year-old killed, a 20-year-old kid. They're, yeah, they're by the scanner. You know, they're really engaged. No, she's doing this to silence the media once again. It's a dictatorship. She doesn't like CWB. She doesn't like the coverage that they're getting because then that footage then goes to, you know, super PAC. Sometimes it ends up in campaign ads and it makes her look bad because it's campaign season. Soon as Christmas is over and New Year's, it's game on. And so that's the control she wants before the last two months before her reelection, allegedly. Yeah. So you want a little bit of lag so you can get your uh, spin in order. Uh, with respect to incidents like this uh, armed robbery that took place in Tony Lincoln Park yesterday. Oh, did you uh, see that? Diana DiGiacomo is uh, walking her dog, and ABC7 has the report, including uh, comments from her on what transpired. She's simply strolling down the Lincoln Park sidewalk with her dog when an SUV pulls up. In an instant, there's a gun in Diana DiGiacomo's face. Having a gun shoved, like, right here... And, and he's holding it sideways like this. Staring down the barrel of a gun, DiGiacomo was almost too stunned to be scared until... Then when he pointed at the dog, I was like, okay, just, just whatever you want, take it. The entire exchange lasts just 11 seconds. He just grabbed my purse and ran. And I just thought, okay, I just, I just got away with my life and my dog's life. As her attacker sprinted away, DiGiacomo watched him rifle through her purse and toss it 
wallet and phone still inside. What she didn't see was what surveillance cameras caught. The SUV circling the bar, two guys jumping out and then speeding off in her Jeep Cherokee. A kid was shot at point blank range a block, a block from here in May. The exact same surveillance cameras at Webster and North Wayne captured a gunman shooting and robbing Dakota early seven months ago. The culinary school graduate spent weeks in the hospital and lost part of his leg. DiGiacomo has already moved out of Chicago because of crime. Now her daughter and son-in-law, whom she was visiting in Lincoln Park, may do the same. We are desperate. We are taxpayers who care about the city and want to stay in Chicago. And we're throwing up our hands. We're throwing up our hands. Uh, we're surrendering. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 6463-6DA, turnkey.pro text line. I mean, don't you feel their frustration? Uh, it, I don't, yeah. I, and then when the, when the, when the guy, sure too, do. because these, these thugs, you know, they watch so many bad guy cops, they think if they point the gun this way, it's really bad, then they'll listen to me. And when they point the gun at the dog, the dog's like, what? I mean, the dog is adorable. And I just feel so bad for her, and I feel bad for her family, too. And she needs to get out. I mean, if she wants to stay safe, that's the only solution. You know what uh, probably could have prevented that uh, that honor student that robbed Deanna Giacomo? Uh, if he had had more instruction on butt plugs and dildos as a uh, in high school. If he had a chance to go to a, you know elite school like Francis Barker, yeah. Yeah. Maybe sure. if he um, uh, was engaged in... Uh, Community organizing Midnight for the basketball. ACLU or uh, raising money for Planned Parenthood, we wouldn't have these problems. He just needs to get into a good school like Francis Parker there in Lincoln Park. Right. right. I mean, it, there's a trio of people, and a bunch, four of them were arrested, um, but they believe a trio has been responsible for 50 plus armed robberies in just four days in Lincoln Park, in Lakeview, and, you know, all over. Yeah, I think it's. I think the number is like sixty-five is since oh, December second. Since oh. December second, uh-huh. so over the last two weeks, fifteen it's... robberies and carjackings. More than sixty-five. That's that's in the last few days. More than sixty-five since December second is what CWB has. But of course, uh, you know, CWB needs to go away. Needs to be uh, well. It needs to be at least uh, made less relevant because of the urgency with which they report on what's happening on the streets because they're monitoring the scanners. Yeah, I, I mean, I I gotta say, I'm a little bit of two minds on the Lightfoot uh, encrypting the police radio transmissions issue what and the media hue and cry. Well, they've all the joined media. together to hire Steve Mandel to fight this. <laughs> well, yeah, they, that's darling. They need that for public safety. They say they need it for public relations. Is what they what they mean? They need it for anybody to tune in to nightly newscasts that are otherwise completely irrelevant and inconsequential. But they will still get eyeballs uh, with the if it bleeds, it leads approach. And so they want to have the crime beat because they need the crime beat. And again, just because they're making noise, I'm talking about the Chicago Press Corps and sending a letter and challenging the mayor on this. Don't think that they're not still in the bag for the same old way of doing business in Chicago because they are. There is, uh, as is almost always the case in Illinois politics and Chicago politics, there is no white hat in this story. They're just two people with black hats who have different agendas in the immediacy, but they share the same overall agenda. So let's just be clear about that before we 
applaud the Chicago press corps for banding together and sending a letter and you give us that access to those radio transmissions so we have something to say that's relevant to people's lives. Greg Jefferson Park. Follow up from last week, 16th District. You got uh, three people executed in the fourth in uh, critical care, I guess, still. And the guy they caught. Uh, yeah, Belmont Craigan, right? The bar shooting? The, yeah, right. Exactly. The Vera Lounge, guys. And it should yeah. be shut down. The guy uh, who did it, uh, I'm guessing, lives two blocks away because they had SWAT over here with a SWAT truck on the lawn at Montrose and Laramie. And then you come to find out from what I read. The guy got out of jail three months ago yeah. for, like, uh, a uh, home invasion in home Elmwood invasion. Park where two people were killed, and he pleaded yeah. down to a lesser charge. Yeah, Parmit? right, exactly. And they said that Albany they Park. Dropped, Excuse me. dropped the charges on ten other killings this guy did. I don't know what it is. I don't know nothing about it, but it's like, and there's a video on CWB that you oh, can see. Oh, it's awful. That, this guy executed these people. It's it's absolutely out of control. Not his first rodeo. You know what yeah. I mean? Uh, yeah, you right. know, I'll tell you. Um, well, he should have been out in the first place, and they invited him to the party, and then they're like, well, he should have been behind jail. Well, you invited him to the party. Yeah, he was your right. friend. Yeah, well, uh, I'll tell you, um, meet your new neighbors. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this and, is... and, oh, and, that, and by the way, uh, thanks for the call, Greg. By the way, that's uh, coming to the suburbs, if that I will say it again, and I'll continue to say it just so... We were on the record, and everybody else was too, including those who were silent. And here's coming, part of that coming, video. Com, coming, coming to the suburbs if the Safety Act goes into effect, even the two, Safety Act 2.0 goes into effect on January 1. All right, this is what to expect. She's a nurse. She's a nurse, care, man. Just back okay, off. Okay, Just okay. Back okay. Off. Wait, wait, wait. How many minutes have you had to wait to be? You have to see it. We tweeted it out. I retweeted it too. It's just absolute. Chaos. You wouldn't even think that this is America when you're watching this. There's bodies everywhere. There's blood everywhere. There's people screaming at the top of their lungs. It's it's awful. What do you mean? I, I, if I saw that, I'd say, oh, this must be big city America. That's immediately. I would think that immediately if I knew nothing about it. I don't know why. When it's I just saw the this opposite. One, it was different. It was it's so just the, graphic. It's just, it's it just, just the opposite. This isn't. You wouldn't think this is America. It's a no. You think, yeah, oh, this must be some place that the Democrats lord over. That's what I would think, because I know better. John and Piatone. Hi there. Uh, I'm a communications engineer, and I, and I know these systems. And any time you encrypt a radio signal, you cut its range by at least a third, oh. which means that these systems that they have in place must be bolstered back up at millions of dollars in the case of the city of Chicago. So, obviously... Those that are making these changes have not done the research. And of course, the salesmen sell the sell. Um, the other part of this is, is some of these digital systems, as they sell them, when they come out, they're processed digitally, but they come out in the clear. Now, they talked about encryption. That means that this is a serious officer safety issue. I was also a former police officer. I understand these systems. And that is a big problem. These guys are not going to be safer. They're going to be less safe. And that's all. They're going to, wait, they're going to be less safe. The officers are going to be less safe if the radio transmissions are encrypted because the the reliability of the communication is lessened because the the uh, the, the 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 range is lessened. Why, why exactly? Yeah, the talk in range from the portables into the systems is reduced by at least a third. They already have dead spots in the existing system. Not bad, 
but they have them. Now you've just increased that problem. Hmm, and, interesting. And anytime you encrypt a signal, you lessen its talk and range. Period. End of story. And they're selling our guys down the tubes by thinking they're going to take care of this. Chicago's system is already retransmitted over the scanner uh, applications uh, on the Internet that will still be in the clear. So if they buy one of those or download one of those apps in their phones, they're still going to be able to hear everything. They may not have the cheap scanner that can hear it, but they're going to be able to hear it in the clear because Chicago's transmissions are all in the clear on the Internet, and they're not changing that. Well, that's interesting. Thanks for the call, John. That's good insight. And um, you would think that uh, media organizations uh, and or the city would know these things. So let's assume they do know these things. And perhaps what we see here is what we normally see, which is uh, two people on the same side pretending to fight to advance both of their interests. It's a fake fight. Uh, the media gets to pretend like they're holding somebody accountable. Lori Lightfoot gets to pretend that she's interested in officer safety. Win-win. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, and um, apparently there's some sort of uh, imbroglio at our southern border. No. Yeah, I just, I'm as surprised as you are, because obviously we have law and order types in the White House in control of Congress. Um, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's serious. MSNBC was reporting it, the, the outlet of record on things like our national security. And officials on the other side of the border, who we've also been speaking with, Jose, they, in El Paso, they say they just do not have the resources to deal with this many migrants. And they say it's unsustainable, and they expected the situation here to get even worse with a bigger migrant influx potentially next week as Title 42 uh, is lifted. And, Jose, as you can see, I'm still walking here. This line is still not over. Um, but, you know, we have seen them. What happens here at the front of the line is that every few minutes, actually every half hour, an hour or so, it depends when they let those 10 to 15 migrants in, buses are brought here to then take them uh, to a processing center. And again, Jose, those processing center, U.S. officials say, are already strapped for resources. And one of the shelters here, um, you know, they just don't have the space for them. Some of these migrants are having to sleep outside in the freezing cold overnight. 
Jose? What, what a just tragic humanitarian crisis. There's a humanitarian what? crisis at the border? What? Yeah, apparently. Um, and I, now I heard they want them to open up Fort Bliss to, you know, help out because El Paso is busting at the seams. Uh, 2,500 this week, I heard. And I, you, you saw the line. If you, if you saw the MSNBC report, why would name? you? I'll just describe it to you. Uh, the line that was uh, waiting for a transportation to the processing center, ostensibly, was something that would rival, you know, uh, ticket sales for a Taylor Swift concert back in the day when you had to do that stuff in person. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people apparently coming over the border. Bit of a humanitarian crisis. Oh. Uh, you know, that language, by the way, also uh, that reporter for MSNBC referring to the migrants across the river there, across the Rio yeah. Grande, as them. Well, it's that sounds Gutierrez. Like, He's one of them, yeah. That right. sounds like othering language to me. Oh. I'm a little attuned to this. So apparently um, MSNBC is now in the business of hate-mongering and othering and institutional racism and not being a welcoming country and so on and so forth, all because Title 42 is going away. Title 42, again, is the ability during COVID for the federal government to uh, quickly uh, eject people who come into this country illegally and return them to the non-U.S. side of the southern border such that they would have to try to enter the country legally. And that, of course, is a novel idea. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. But under Title 42, if you're from Nicaragua and Cuba, those countries will not take you back and Mexico won't take you, so the U.S. takes you. So it's weird because a lot of people are rushing in before Title 42 expires, and then some people are waiting in Mexico for it to expire. This is a Guatemalan family that Gabe Gutierrez, who we just heard from, interviewed. Now they're waiting until Title 42 is lifted before they decide whether to cross into the United States. Well, sure. And they expect 10,000 people a day in El Paso alone because there's the uncompleted border walls at that spot. California, they're mostly protected. With border, border wall. What, what? Well, you got. The, you don't have the left talking about a border wall now, do you? Yeah, I mean you it's bad enough. The that, border. Doug Ducey's enough. doing it in Arizona before he hits the high road January. 5th. Well, Doug Ducey, that's one thing. I'm talking about uh, the people that care about other human beings. I'm not talking about Republicans. I'm talking about people care about humanity. I'm talking about people that are the vanguard for the downtrodden, who are the uh, you know, the, 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 the torch holders for America in the 21st century, shining a light for the oppressed to enter this country. Give me t- your tired and your poor. I'm talking about that party. You, you can't be talking about a border wall. I mean, it's bad enough that Kristen Cinema is even uttering the phrase border security. Uh, just a, a few seconds ago, uh, this was a party that was out and proud for the elimination of Customs and Border Patrol oh, yeah. and open borders. So oh, that's right. what, what are we talking about here? I, I'm i I'm just flummoxed. I mean, the Democratic mayor of El Paso, he sees that there's a bit of a problem. It is a crisis. It is a state crisis. of emergency. There is no there's no municipality alone that could handle what, what we're seeing and what we're about to see with the lifting of Title 42. There's what? people all scattered all over the street in El Paso. Looks, what the heck happened to that city? What the heck happened to your personal coda 
as nicely enshrined by Emma Lazarus. What? Can't handle it. Humanitarian crisis? Municipalities overrun? What? Huh? Uh, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, he wants a billion dollars. He wants a billion dollars as uh, New York City's migrant crush swells to 30,000. Oh, come on. 30,000, that's child's play. In July, they had 51,000 that tiny tiny town in El Paso. was. um, um, What was that town called? Uh, I can't remember. 30,000 in New York City. New York City. And uh, 21,000 living in taxpayer-funded shelters, according to City Hall. Well, that's why you have them. That's why you build the safety net, right, Mayor Adams? I mean, I'm just trying to, you know, fold in with the party that cares about other human beings as opposed to, you know, the racist, xenophobic, homophobic, transphobic, very phobic, uh, very ist, very othering party that I affiliate with. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to better myself. So I, I but now but now I'm completely baffled by the rhetoric I hear coming from big city mayors and big state governors like our biggest Gavin Newsom uh, deigned to do a national interview uh, to profile his visit to the border. And apparently, uh, you know, he's got some issues there in California. I, what? This is the first time hearing of this. The fact is, what we've got right now is not working, and it's about what? to break in a post-42 no. world on, unless we it. take some responsibility and ownership. And I'm saying that as a Democrat. I'm not saying that to point fingers. I'm saying no. that as a father. Oh, I'm saying father. that as someone that feels responsible for being part of the solution, and I'm trying to do my best here. Exactly. I mean, he's trying to do his best. And look, Gavin Newsom's not a politician. He's a dad. He's and, just like uh, me and you. That's, that's how he governs. He's our dad. I mean, if our dad in California can't figure this out, what chance do we have here in flyover country? I, I, we're going to talk to Mark Morgan at the bottom of the 6 o'clock hour. Maybe he can make some sense of this because I, I just so. can't. I'm totally upside down on this. Uh, a little help here. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Vince in St. Charles. Uh, good morning, guys. You know, MSNBC talking about the border is, I expected that when pigs fly. Wait a second. No, that was a bird. So uh, I'm, like, surprised something's going on, but at least they're finally talking about it. But I'm still shocked something is up with that. But we'll see. Well, thanks for calling. And, and, I mean, just to give you some hope, I mean, Gavin Newsom said he'd be happy to work with border state governors like Greg Abbott or uh, other governors who've made – uh, some headlines on the topic like Ron DeSantis, but he's not going to do it. He doesn't want to do it in a hateful way that they do it. No, of course not. He's compassionate. He provides for people. He's our dad, no, Gavin. He, he went down to the border, Dan. He was in front <laughs> no. of a wall that had barbed wire on top of it and did a little TikToker thing there, saying well, that he cares. And then he went over and talked to, I think it was Mexicali, to the governor of Mexicali because it's so important, and then came back over. Well, he's trying to, you know, uh, raise the uh, alarm here. Sound the sound the alarm that uh, we got we got a problem. By the way, it was Eagle Pass, Texas, that I meant to say that. Oh yeah, has right. a population of thirty, but they had fifty-one thousand in July alone. Crossover into their tiny. Yeah, town. remember but we talked no to problem. that that ranch hand, and they're oh, coming yeah. across the the guy's property every day. 
Never seen, never seen anything like it in 30 years of being a rancher. Yeah. But I mean, but what, who does he know? We've I don't, lost one million people. Have we? We have no accountability for. Ninety-eight are known terrorists that are roaming around somewhere in the United States. But Gavin, yeah. he's just catching on. Those things don't mean anything to me. Uh, the the data points, uh, the experience of the the unwashed masses, like some ranch hand in Eagle Pass. What matters? Yeah. What matters? is when Gavin Newsom weighs in on a topic. What matters is when MSNBC mm-hmm. tackles an issue. Now you've got my attention. He's trying to now like it's getting leader. real. He wants to be president. I'm a leader. I'm standing strong. Look at me. I'm Gavin Newsom, and I'm hot. Roger and on the south side. Yeah, good morning, my friends. Uh, I guess, it, you know, it's, I don't know the way I'm looking at this. This could be the final chapter of, like, you know, the crazy girl from Hinsdale. I mean, yeah, they're... This, this is what they pushed for. I mean, here, our own government is not aiding the state of Texas. I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, things sold out here, I mean, that I had a friend in the last few days from Houston who's been down there in the last year. He, essentially, we're going to have to send a second Marines down there to straighten out the crime situation. I mean, this, I, I, I guess, the, what do the pilots say? Screw the pooch? I, I think this could be it. And guess where they're coming? Sanctuary cities, where they have relatives and yeah. get jobs. Well, get and, and they get and they get free bus rides or plane rides from the governors of Texas and Florida, so that yeah, helps too. Well, no, of course, and they don't have to take a COVID test, but if you come in from a different country, you're yeah. going to have to. But did, did I'm sorry, Roger? Did I miss something? Did yeah. um, has anybody in Chicago or Illinois talked about repealing the sanctuary state, county, city designation? I haven't heard it. I haven't heard it in New York from Eric Adams. I'm not hearing it in, in, uh, from Gavin Newsom in California. I'm not. I'm not hearing that. No, I think that uh, they've been very busy lately. Oh, we're sure. On, yes, uh, we're yeah. working on same-sex marriage laws yeah. that are. You know, people who have been same-sex have been getting married for I don't know thirty don't years. Don't forget interracial yeah. marriage too, because I had no idea that oh. that was under attack. I'm so glad I yeah. got that in and out. You know, before it became. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about moving to Hyde Park myself. Yeah. Thanks, um, thanks for the call, Roger. Appreciate it. Phil Maraville. Hey, how you doing? Uh, um, they say the numbers are about ten to fifteen illegal immigrants in the country, and between the people that maybe were here on work visas and those are expired, and now they're here and they didn't renew it, the numbers could be as high as forty million. They say, and that's possibly over ten percent of the country. Um, it's not, it may not be confirmed, but if they ever become legalized, you could count on the Democrats winning every election from here on out. Thanks for the call, Phil. Yeah, it's a little complicated. It's a little bit more complicated, particularly as you're here for your family's here for multiple generations. Um, I mean, I, yeah, the whole, that whole, um, line of argument that just gets rinsed and repeated without any sort of critical thought associated with it. It's a little bit more complicated than that. That's not an argument in favor of lawlessness at the border or illegal immigration. It's an argument in favor of legal immigration. And as I've said before, even though I'm a you know obviously a hate monger and part of the uh, white patriarchal society that oppresses per- people of color, uh, setting that aside, if you would, for just a moment, uh, that the one way to expedite, you want to get my attention about immigration reform? Uh, in addition to the sort of resources that are required to secure the southern border so it is not porous, doesn't even begin to describe it, 
um, and the ejection of people in this country post haste who've been convicted of crimes right. in this country illegally who've been com- convicted of crimes. So you accomplish those two things, and then I'll give you something. How about uh, we expedite the um, entrance of persons into this country who are following the legal process if they waive their access to welfare state benefits? And you can even fast-track their uh, permanent status, like getting access to a permanent status designation. Waive your access to welfare state benefits because that tells me you're here to do exactly what so many say, which is build a better life for yourself and your family, and you're you know coming here to get to work straight away. Then why don't we put uh, those that are so motivated to the front of the line, yeah. following the legal process? You know, there's there's all kinds of creative things you can do once you actually have law and order at the border, but you don't have that now. So then you can't do creative things because you can't even accomplish the first task, the necessary task to have any sort of semblance of sanity when it comes to policymaking. Craig in Mount Greenwood. Hey, good morning, Dan. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Let's not be uh, naive about this, though. We don't, uh, and I'm not suggesting that you are at all, but here's the thing, most people, when you hear this stuff come from any of these leftists, whether it be Lightfoot, whether it be uh, gruesome, newsome, everything, it's their motives. Their motives are absolutely never going to be anything other than something that's self-serving, something that serves the left, whatever. We may not immediately know what the uh, their motive is, but it's going to be bad for America or justice or anything good or anything that's on the right. So uh, it's, just, it's, it's just, probably something. Yeah, thanks for the call, Greg. I mean, it's just political It's just political positioning. I mean, Gavin Newsom wants to be president, so this is political right. positioning. You, you understand that. That that you know the super despite you, what you would think based on how few Republicans make this a central issue, this is a super majority issue in the direction of border security. And so the AOC position is not sellable outside of the Bronx. Not sellable. The sanctuary state, sanctuary city is not sellable outside of lost their mind America. So he has to be seen, Newsom, as, oh, he's a, he's a kind of a, he's trying to solutionist. He recognizes a problem. He wants to do something about it, but let's do it in a humane way. The same thing Eric Adams is doing in New York City. Oh, we need, we, of course, we want to take in and we want to maintain the stat designation, but, you know, give me a billion dollars so that I can paper over this problem with money. But I have to be seen as doing something. And so that I can position myself as sort of the middle way between the two extremes. That's all this is. It's just political positioning, posturing, because we're talking about politicians, not our dad. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer. On AM 560, The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. 
They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Merry Christmas. On AM 560. Ho, ho, ho. The Answer. Love that movie. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We'll have to do a favorite Christmas movies bit before uh, the year is out. Well, before Christmas comes, but we can wait on that for a minute. Oh, yeah. We still have all of next week. Well, four uh, days of next week. Indeed. Uh, governor Ron DeSantis, uh, he's the governor of Florida, you may have heard. He uh, and his Surgeon General, uh, by way of UCLA, friend of the show, Dr. Joseph Latipo, had a uh, Zoom town hall meeting on covid on Tuesday of this week. And uh, one of the, uh, there are several things that were discussed, but uh, first and foremost was an announcement that DeSantis made on Tuesday that he is uh, seeking a grand jury investigation of the drug companies. Florida, you know, it is against the law to mislead and to misrepresent, particularly when you're talking about the efficacy of a drug. Uh, we see just the other, uh, just recently, Florida got $3.2 billion through legal action against those responsible for the opioid crisis. And so it's not like this is something that's unprecedented. So today, uh, I'm announcing a, a petition with the Supreme Court of Florida to impanel a statewide grand jury to investigate any and all wrongdoing in Florida with respect to COVID-19 vaccines. And we anticipate that we will get the approval for that. Uh, That will be something that will be impaneled, most likely in the Tampa Bay area. uh, And that will come with legal processes that will be able uh, to get more information and to bring legal accountability for those who committed misconduct. 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. You like this move by DeSantis to put the drug companies that produce the mRNA vaccines under the microscope? I love it. He's the only leader, only governor in the country doing it, right? He's only been gov- a leader in everything. Uh, he, he is, and he's, by the way, this, uh, well, and as we get into it, you'll, I think, see the accuracy of what I'm about to say. Uh, what he is doing. Is what the CDC should be doing. Is what Trump should have done. Oh. What he is doing is putting together his own team of doctors and science, data scientists and experts uh, across a broad range of disciplines, people that he trusts to level with him so that you can chart a path forward without having the burden of everybody's institutional and political interests running interference for what you're trying to do. That's what a good executive does. That, what you heard from him, 
seeking the grand jury to investigate the drug companies for anything that runs afoul of Florida law. Could be in marketing, could be in uh, compensation, uh, you know, incentives, financial incentives provided to doctors and hospitals, could be in a lot of areas. He wasn't specific, but I'm sure he's got some ideas. Don't forget he himself as an attorney. But uh, that res- what that announcement you just heard drew this response from St. Tony Fauci, who had the courage to go on CNN to deliver it. I don't have a clue, Kate, what he's asking for. I mean, we have a vaccine that unequivocally is highly effective and safe and has saved literally millions of lives. The Commonwealth Fund has come out with a report just this past week that vaccinations that have been administered over this period of time, this last year and a half to two years, has saved 3.2 million lives, 18 million hospitalizations, and approximately $1 trillion in costs. So what's the problem with vaccines? I mean, vaccines are life-saving. So quite frankly, Kate, I'm not sure what, what they're trying to do down there. Mm-hmm. Is he saying that there's something wrong with vaccines? He wants to in- investigate the drug companies for anything that violated Florida law. Well, he's not did- going out there saying, don't get vaccinated. No, he's not. And well, that's but the- the, everybody on Twitter is saying that yesterday. Oh, what, what's wrong? He's an anti-vaxxer. No, he's not an anti-vaxxer. Right. If you provide any balance to the discussion, if you suggest any trade-offs, if you oppose any mandates, you're anti-vax. When in point of fact, it's nothing of the sort. Ron DeSantis is not now and never was anti-vax. He's just doing those other things I just described and being characterized, including by a political hack like Tony Fauci, accordingly. So, right, that is not what's happening. Um, He did include stories, and you'll hear them, uh, some of them in a moment, about uh, individuals, individuals that were on this Zoom town hall sharing their stories of adverse outcomes, something else Tony Fauci has tried to bury as he continues to propagate this mythology that we live in a world without trade-offs. And that is one of the crimes against humanity that Tony Fauci and his ilk have committed over the last three years. But on that Commonwealth Fund study, Steve Moore brought it up with us yesterday uh, in our conversation too, and I wanted to take the time to address it because Alex Berenson, our friend who's been uh, a sort of journalist n- numero uno on the right. all things COVID over the last couple of years. And reinstated he, to Twitter, by the way. He took it up. He took it up. Here's all you need to know. The study Commonwealth released yesterday makes estimates through November 30th, but it's actually an, of last of this year, November 30th this year. But it's actually an update of an earlier paper that made the same calculations through March 31 of this year. Through March 31 of this year, the Commonwealth Fund claimed that the vaccine had saved 2.26 million lives and stopped 66 million infections. That's through March. Thus, the updated paper is claiming that the mRNA jabs prevented an additional million COVID deaths and prevented an additional 54 million infections in just the last eight months. Again, the Berenson argument here. First, No one even bothers to argue anymore that the vaccines stop infection with the Omicron variant. At best, they're marginally effective for a few weeks or months, and their effectiveness goes to zero, if not below, afterwards. And that's not Alex Berenson saying it. It's the New England Journal of Medicine concluding it, 
quoting the New England Journal of Medicine, quote, the effectiveness of vaccination against Omicron with two doses and no previous infection was negligible. Back to Berenson. Second, let's pretend for the sake of argument, the papers claim that the vaccine stopped 54 million COVID infections between April and November is correct rather than absurd. Fine. Then the paper is claiming that uh, avoiding those 54 million infections prevented 1 million deaths. So do the math on that. There in the Commonwealth Fund is estimating an infection fatality rate from Omicron of almost 2 percent, 1 million out of 54 million infections. Well, that's 20 times the actual infection fatality rate for Omicron. 20 times. This is like the modeling of the projected number of deaths from uh, starting with uh, uh, the College of the College of London across the pond there that, you know, predicted and that predicted end times if uh, lockdowns weren't pursued. And this was the basis for the hysteria that put the pressure on the politicians to go in the direction of lockdowns, Trump included. The the conclusion, Berenson, remember, former New York Times reporter, he offers on this study, study in quotation marks, that's, again, accepted without criticism, without much thought, I suspect, by Tony Fauci, man of science. I wonder how he would respond to the points that Berenson is bringing up. We'll never know because he only goes... On He only goes to places where he receives compliments and softballs at like CNN. Berenson's conclusion. The only reason that the study is dishonest and the only reason to do it is to produce numbers that friendly reporters can paste into headlines and post on Twitter. Yeah. That's awesome. Right. Yeah. I think he's got it about summed. Well, finally, someone's going after big pharma on covid. And, of course, it takes a natural leader like Ron DeSantis. And uh, the trade-offs, the study out of Florida, which they're not overhyping. They're saying preliminary findings because there's some humility and restraint when it comes to DeSantis and his team. Here's uh, Dr. Uh, Joseph Latipo on the study that we talked about when it was released, but reminding people the study that was done in Florida on the impact of vaccines, good and not so good. And we did a study in Florida where we looked at all-cause mortality and, uh, and cardiac mortality after the COVID-19 vaccines. The study's preliminary. It's not perfect. Most studies aren't perfect. But what was, there are two things that were remarkable. The first thing that was remarkable, of course, was the major finding which was there was a signal for a markedly increased risk of cardiac death in young men, specifically in that age and sex group. So obviously that's, that's a huge finding. The second thing that was, that was <laughs> remarkable is that scientists, many scientists around the country felt that despite the fact that young men have already been identified as a group that is specifically especially at risk for myocarditis, it was impossible to find that, they, that this same group was at increased risk of cardiac death. The theme is the same. You know, there's, there's what makes sense, and then there's, unfortunately, what a lot of our 
health officials, and, and unfortunately a lot of my colleagues, a lot of our colleagues are telling the public. So that's what we found in Florida, and we are, we are not done, and we're going to make some announcements related to that today. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I look over uh, at some of our European uh, friends. Yeah, and he went on to DeSantis there to make mention the fact, you know, um, just FYI, reminder, Denmark prohibits right. vaccinations for anyone under 50, 5 zero. Yep. Now, you want to argue that? Fine, argue it. But don't ignore it. And that's what the medical, the politicized medical establishment does in this country. That's what Latipo is speaking to. And he's precisely right. And Tony Fauci's at the top of that pyramid, isn't he? And this is something else, as was mentioned, that they don't want to give voice to, which is adverse outcomes from the vaccines. We know the where the majority of deaths have occurred, what demographics. Yeah, was it we know ten we know the dem- yeah we know the demographics that are largely insulated from the effects of the virus, at least in terms of any concern about lethality, and yet again there's no modulation in policy thinking based on the science and the data, and so you have persuaded cajoled people who maybe otherwise wouldn't have gotten the vaccines and suffered an adverse outcome to do so because you're a bad person if you don't get vaccinated or you couldn't play sports you had no life i mean i vaccinated my kids so that they wouldn't be singled out that if somebody you know if they were around of close contact they'd be yanked for 10 days and eventually they changed that to five but for a year it was 10 days so anybody that was unvaxxed it was constant they were constantly being pulled out of sports out of school you're a bad person, you're a threat to democracy, you're, you're a public your you're a public safety hazard, right? And and so if and, and so maybe decisions would have been made differently on the individual level, which is where decisions should be made, particularly about your individual health, if it was a conversation like you had on that Zoom town hall with DeSantis and company where there was a discussion about trade offs so that you could make the best decision possible for you based on what we know at what we you know knew at the time and as we continue to develop knowledge and as they continue to push a never-ending series of boosters uh, one such woman who is actually in healthcare, healthcare professional her name is michelle utter she shared what happened to her before my vaccine i was active worked out ran three miles crossfit ran spartan races even did martial arts a bit of a tomboy I have three sons serving the military and they were mandated to get the vaccine. In order to me to be able to see them, I needed to be vaccinated. I have been on 17 months of IVIG infusions. I go to an infusion center and be infused for six to 10 hours and they don't really know how to treat me. Working in healthcare, you would think that you would get the best care and the best resources available to you. I was being ignored, gaslit, and abandoned. Clay and Wheeling, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Um, I don't know if you've seen the latest study, but the unvaccinated, unvaccinated are more likely to get into car crashes. Yes. Uh, yeah, that is the most recent yeah. uh, study. We tweeted Fantastic. that out at morning, Chicago's Morning Answer, if you want to read it. It's unbelievable. Can you believe How ridiculous. that? 
Such shaming um, continues. You're going to kill yourself oh, in yeah. And by the yeah. way, just as a quick aside, <laughs> sorry to interrupt, Clay, but just a quick aside. Miss Otter, you heard from IBIG uh, uh, infusion. She said she's been on for the last how many ever months. That's a therapy treatment for patients with antibody deficiencies. Antibody deficiency after she got the vax. Anyway, go ahead, Clay. Fantastic. Um, I have a very close friend, 29-year-old male, uh, same age as me, never a really serious health problem, took the vaccine, lo and behold, myocarditis, almost died in the hospital, almost died, just shy of it. I think it's uh, pretty easy for Ron, or uh, Dan, uh, not to knock you, but I think it's pretty easy to say, you know, this is what Trump should have done. You know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Back when this first kicked off three years ago, it, the world was in complete chaos over what to do. So, I, you know, I, I love yeah. Ron DeSantis. Yeah, well, he learned, I mean, he learned from Trump's mistake, and that's fine. Oh, absolutely. And, Agreed. And, but but, but uh, with respect to Trump, right, the world was in chaos, so, you know, we'll give you a certain tolerance, right, a certain window of, of you know, the, 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 the fog of war type of uh, uh, excuse. Agreed, but, 100%. But, but, but he waited too long. In fact, he never did. Ultimately, sideline Fauci and Burks or uh, expand the universe of advisors that were that are qualified, finally bringing in Scott Atlas, you know, way, way, way too late. But many others that he could have brought in who are being uh, silenced on social media and by the medical establishment targeted by Fauci and Francis Collins. Why, why wasn't Dr. Bhattacharya, uh, Dr. Gupta, Dr. Kaldor from these great institutions who had great reputations until they were trashed by Tony Fauci and company? I mean, they should have been part of this fold. They should have been brought into, brought into Trump's fold early on. And look, here's the problem with Trump. Directionally right, big picture guy, got uh, a brass set, but he's not a detail-oriented executive the way that DeSantis is. And there's a clear distinction between the way the two operate. He's seat of your pants. And hundred percent agreed. And I think that's where, uh, you know, having somewhat of a political background could have come into uh, Trump's benefit. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it, Trump is the way Trump is, you know, I, I get you, it. You, you know, love him or hate him, you know? I get it. I get it. Thanks for the call. That's what I say. You know, you got to take them. You don't get to just take the good and not the not so good. Um, DeSantis, is, you know, I mean, he said it in no uncertain terms. He's doing and the state of Florida what uh, the other states have outsourced to the CDC, and you can't do it anymore. Not if you want these sort of balanced, intelligent discussions and the policymaking that those sorts of discussions generate. And just just show, you know, that this is all just a huge political farce. I don't know what is. But the reality is, even this in May of June of 2020, uh, I think you've continued to see people uh, in these bureaucracies and in this establishment behave in ways uh, that have totally squandered any type of confidence or goodwill that people would have. And our CDC at this point, anything they put out, you just assume at this point uh, that it's not worth the paper that it's printed on. That's a pretty strong statement and not an inaccurate one. Tom in Blue Island. Good morning, Dan and Amy. I would uh, make the assumption that the majority of the people listening to this show are old enough to realize when we were told that drugs had to be tested for 5, 10, 20, 30 years, Trump got suckered. He walked right into this. 
no, there was no way I was taking a vaccine that had been studied or brought to market in a year. And so now uh, this will afford the Republican establishment a chance to, this will be one thing they can peck away at Trump at. He screwed up on this. DeSantis has the uh, option here because he has the history and he's got the numbers to see it. And um, so this will be one of the ways that they'll try to take Trump down and it's his own fault. Thanks for the call, Tom. They were trying to take him down too. I mean, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burke, did you think they had Trump's back during COVID? No. They wanted him to fail. Yeah, but so it's not even Biden or a Democrat in office. Yeah, but it's not even it's not even having his back. It's not even having his back. They were they were political actors and they should have been seen as such. It was pretty obvious, certainly by, you know, and by I mean, I, I, well, certainly by the, 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 the summer, uh, uh, the, the mid to late summer. I mean, I said at the beginning, I remember saying I don't remember exactly. They, hey, OK, you know, I don't know much about this guy. I know he's been there forever. But, you know, now you're going to be introduced to these these uh, people that operate in the shadows of public health bureaucracy. So we'll see. you got to give them a chance. And so you want to give them a chance and you listen to day after day of press briefing and so on and so forth. And then the way that they, especially Fauci, sought to uh, ally with the D.C. press corps rather than... Um, you know, tell people uncomfortable things about what we don't know and do exactly what I said. Forget the politicians for a second. It was Tony Fauci that was singularly minded, who was myopic, who was happy to weigh in on all sorts of things outside of his supposed core competency, but wouldn't do what you have to do when you don't know, which is to say, we suppose this. We're concerned about that. There's a balance that needs to be met here. There was none of that. And what we, of course, found out, you know, as we went along is that he was uh, saying things and then reversing course based on the political wins on just about every aspect of covid policy decision making, every aspect of covid response. And one good example of that, I mean, the CDC, you know, don't gather in large groups. But then George Floyd happened and they just let them. You know, thousands of people were in each other's face outside for days. And Tony Fauci had nothing to say about that because he didn't want to step on. You know, you know, that's when he doesn't want to get into politics. Every place else he was happy to get into politics, happy to go after governors that that disagreed with him or that were asking uncomfortable questions and happy to sidle up to Andy Cuomo and talk about, you know, who De Niro and Pacino are going to play in the movie about their lives. I mean, Trump, Trump should have made a move. The problem of the Trump administration, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to dwell on it, but let's just remember this. Let's just be honest about it. He surrounded himself with too many sycophants throughout his career, too many yes-men, bootlickers who are not particularly talented. Michael Cohen comes to mind, Roger number Stone. one. And, and he was too lethargic in moving against careerists, draining the swamp, particularly when they showed themselves to be nothing more than political actors. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We're talking about it a little bit earlier on the show, this uh, 
breaking news that uh, MSNBC exclusively delivered yesterday that there's some sort of crisis at our border. Take a listen. And officials on the other side of the border, who we've also been speaking with, Jose, they, in El Paso, they say they just do not have the resources to deal with this many migrants. And they say it's unsustainable and they expected the situation here to get even worse with a bigger migrant influx potentially next week as Title 42 uh, is lifted. And Jose, as you can see, I'm still walking here. This line is still not over. Um, but, you know, we have seen them. What happens here at the front of the line is that every few minutes, actually, every half hour, an hour or so, it depends when they let those 10 to 15 migrants in, buses are brought here to then take them uh, to a processing center. And again, Jose, those processing center, U.S. officials say, are already strapped for resources. And one of the shelters here, um, you know, they just don't have the space for them. Some of these migrants are having to sleep outside in the freezing cold overnight. Jose? What, what a just tragic humanitarian crisis. That Apparently there's some sort of tragic humanitarian crisis at the border. Wow, is there really? That's the kind of incendiary oh. rhetoric I thought that was reserved for, you know, hate mongers on the right. But, uh, hey, what can we tell you? That's MSNBC. That that's Those are people that care about other human beings. Those are our betters. And um, so, I'm, you know, you got to take them at their word, don't you? For more on this, please be joined by Mark Morgan, former U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner and visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan, Amy, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, you know, Shocking the story. You know, right. Welcome story. back to the real world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It only but, took more than a year. Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, were you surprised to hear about what's happening at the border from MSNBC? Yeah, I was shocked. I, I had no idea. I, I mean, right. because Secretary Mayorkas has been telling us for two years that hey, there's there's nothing to see here. We with the border secure. We have operational security. Our president has said, hey, there's more important things happening than, than t- title erosion of the rule of law, our nation's sovereignty, and the fact that drugs and criminals and national security threats are pouring across killing Americans every day and jeopardize our national security. You know, I, I so I had no idea. Well, I'm old, enough to, I'm old enough to remember when Jen Psaki was the White House spokesman, and uh, people like me and you were chided for using that word crisis. There's a situation at the border, not a crisis. But now we have a crisis, imagine. Yeah, and and the current press secretary, remember, uh, uh, one of the White House correspondents uh, was, was, you know, challenging on the crisis that was going on. And she said, well, you know, it's not like they're just walking across the border. (laughs) Right? Literally, for two years, we've seen pictures and video after video after video of them literally walk across the border. The past 48 hours, we've seen thousands of them lined up, stacked up, literally walking across the border. And, you know, Danny, this is why not only did they dismantle every effective tool authority possibly have, not only did they take the most secure border in our lifetime and intentionally unsecure it for politics and ideology, but, but just as equally as important, it gets me so worked up is they've been outright, unabashedly, blatantly lying to the American people about it. That is just unconscionable. Well, that's why, don't you think Mayorkas should be impeached? Because he lied before Congress and said that the border was secure. Yeah, Amy, look, I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. This is one of the things. Let's keep in mind. 
Secretary Mayorkas, he has been the chief architect of this administration's open border policies. And as you said, it, he's lied to the American people. I mean, every single day, drugs, criminals, and national security threats are pouring across this border. J- just in the first 60 days, 60 days of this fiscal year, there have been over 160,000 gotaways. On top of the over million gotaways we've already had in the first 22 months, he's abandoned his oath of office. He's eroded the public's trust in our justice system. He's threatened the rule of law. He's lied to the American people. He's lied to Congress. He's refused to enforce the law, and he's vilified his own men when he lied that they were whipping people. He knew it wasn't yeah. the truth. What yeah. more do you need? We, he, we need to hold this man accountable. He was in El Paso yesterday, too, and, and he hid from the media. He would not let—do you know why he was there, and did he accomplish anything? No, and I've heard from Border Patrol agents. So, so one of the big things, right, with Title 42, so, so what's the plan? I mean, they've known for a very, very long time that Title 42 was going away, very long time. There, there's, there's, it's unconscionable that they can't at least put, like, a, a bullet point plan out to the media, you know, out to the entire country. Hey, here's our generic plan, right? So, so you would think that the secretary went to El Paso. By the way, I was in El Paso. Uh, uh, last week. I, I, I'm no longer in the government. I've been to the border more times than the secretary has been to the border. And and guess what? I've heard from border patrol agents down there. There's no no plan. No plan was discussed. Nothing. Zero. Yeah, but Mark, you, you have to appreciate that Secretary Mayorkas has to keep track of all these parents who are attending school board meetings. So, you know, he's he's got to watch them, too. He can't just be spending all his time at the border. That's right. I mean, he's in line with the, the president, right? There's more important things to do, like go to an opening of a plant. Yep, I got it. Um, the, um, uh, the, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, um, he uh, now recognizes there's some sort of problem at the border, too, just like New York City Mayor Eric Adams. And it sounds to me like they want more federal government money to put into more social services infrastructure so they can be perceived as doing something to address the influx of uh, persons in this country illegally visiting California and New York City. Yeah, I, I, did. I saw him. He was he was he was at the border. He was standing in, in, in front of part of the wall that was been built. I, I mean, if it wasn't so serious, I would have just burst out laughing. Right. right? I mean, this, this is so transparent. So I mean, I, clearly he, he's got things that he wants to do in his political career. I mean, this is the man that has been the champion of, of creating really the country's first sanctuary state. He's the man that says we're welcoming all illegal aliens. This is a man who continues to pass legislation and push for more legislation to give more rights and benefits and rewards to those who have violated our sovereignty, violated the rule of law, and entered our country illegally. And even those that have a final court order of removal has refused, refused to work with federal government to remove them unlawfully, even though they're here unlawfully. Instead, he continues to reward them. And now, after two years, uh, he's, he's on the border saying, hey, we need to do something. But at the end of the day, he's doing the exact same thing that most members in Congress, including Republicans. Look, we, we, have to be, we have to be fair on this. Republicans are part of the problem here. Right now what the Republicans are doing is they're talking about just throwing more money at, at the problem. Right. 
That, that's not going to solve the issue. This is a policy issue. Congress needs to step up and show political courage, strength, and leverage to pass meaningful legislation to stop the crisis on our border that's literally killing Americans every single day. If you throw more money at it, this administration is just going to get more efficient and more effective at receiving, incentivizing, and releasing illegal aliens in this country, and it's just going to create well, more to the, come. The first thing they should do is you know, not repeal Title 42, don't you think? Absolutely. Look, that, that's really the one. Yeah, well, that, well that, it's, 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 it's a judicial days. order. I mean, it's right, not. Uh, yeah, well, right, but can't Biden well, do something? Well, they can't. So Title 42 is actually CDC owns that. So CDC, actually, it's a public health order. But it, it really is the, the, the one tool that, that is the only tool that's remained that they're using actually to remove even some of the individuals. Um, and, and Congress could codify that. Congress could. Yeah, Congress, Congress could force can act. But right. it, it's, exactly. That's what I mean. This is about Congress passing meaningful legislation like like codifying the Remain in Mexico program, which was the single-handed most effective tool to reduce one of the largest incentives. It closed catch and release. And that's what illegal aliens want. They want to illegally enter and then be released in the United States, never be heard from again. The Remain in Mexico program closed that catch and release uh, 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 issue down. By February of 2020, we had reduced illegal immigration by 85%. And what was the result of that? That meant more agents back on the line, back on their national security mission. And what did that result in? A more secure border. They were catching more gotaways. They were catching more criminals. They were stopping more potential national security threats. I mean, it's not rocket scientry what needs to be happened. And that's why, look, but you've got some Republicans that want to just say, hey, let's throw some more money at it and then call the day, slap ourselves on the back and say, look, we passed some some border security. So the no, same, so, the same, it's just the opposite side of the, the same coin. It's the other side of the coin. <laughs> Gavin Newsom and, and Eric Adams, they want cash for social services. And Republicans are saying, let's just throw cash at the a border secure at the law enforcement at the border and say and call it a day. We don't do anything. Nothing. Nothing to structurally change what's happening. That's it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I couldn't say it better myself. Um, so I, you know, I watched that Gavin Newsom interview too with ABC News. I, I don't, I couldn't pick up on it. Maybe you was he wearing uh, Armani or Dolce and Gabbana? I don't know who was he wearing for that interview. Do you know? Um, all right. It so something else. Yeah. Something else I wanted to uh, get to here because this is something else Republicans should be taking up, and it's work that was done uh, in part by where, where you currently are a visiting fellow, and that's Heritage Foundation, the NGOs. Governor Abbott yes. in Texas, these left-wing uh, NGOs, Governor Abbott in Texas announced uh, an investigation, and he's calling in the Attorney General of the state of Texas, Ken Paxton, to uh, investigate these NGOs. He said there have been recent reports that non-government organizations may have assisted with illegal boarding crossings near El Paso. We further understand NGOs may be engaged in unlawfully orchestrating other border crossings through activities on both sides of the border, including in sectors other than El Paso. You have these private actors that are violating uh, federal immigration law, and they should be held to account, if that's true. Yeah, so I, I think they uh, they absolutely are. And again, look, I, I like to call balls and strikes, right? I like to stay out of the political fray, although you can't talk about border security without politics, right? Because they've been fused. It shouldn't be a right or left thing. Securing our border, right? right. It's just to me a red, white, and blue thing. It's common sense. There's no downside to securing the border. But I say that because Governor – look, this is another example of how Governor Abbott and A.G. Paxton has done more than any other governor and A.G. in, in, in this country 
to, to try to fill the void that's been left by this administration's abdication of their constitutional responsibility to protect this country from threats outside our borders. Uh, they're absolutely right on this. Heritage Foundation, through their oversight project, they did what's called geofencing. Uh, they obtained, and this is important, publicly available data. That means you and I, everybody, we have this data. All you got to do is pay for it. Everybody can get it. And what we did was we identified where these NGO processing centers are along the border. El Paso was one of those. And we got this publicly available uh, data, uh, cell phone data, and then we tracked it. And guess what? Uh, of, the, of the 435 congressional districts throughout this entire country, we tracked, and it was only a small number, about 20,000 or so numbers, uh, we were able to track phone numbers from, from crossing the border, going into these NGO-sponsored uh, uh, shelters and processing centers. We were able to track them to four. I think it's over 430 of the 435 congressional uh, districts in this country. So what that shows is just what we've been saying since day one, is that, that, that this administration uh, uh, has conspired with the NGOs, who, by the way, are working with uh, uh, groups to help uh, facilitate illegal immigration, have been doing this since day one, and they're literally processing and sending illegal aliens to every state in this country. He is Mark Morgan, former U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner, visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Mark, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Yeah, and Amy, thanks for having me. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Jennifer Granholm is the energy secretary. Seriously, she is. I mean, it's so. When I was homesick, I watched her talk for a while, and I just said, "Are you? That's the best they could do." Her. She is to energy policy what uh, Peabot Mayor Pete Buttigieg is to transportation policy. You can decide if that's a compliment or not. He likes the choo-choo in the airports. He got engaged at the airport. It's a wonderful story. Uh, Jennifer Granholm. Uh, made a big announcement about an alleged scientific breakthrough in fusion power this week. This was uh, her breathless offering. And that is creating more energy from fusion reactions than the energy used to start the process. It's the first time it has ever been done in a laboratory anywhere in the world. Simply put, this is one of the most impressive scientific feats of the 21st century. Or, as the president might say, right. Yeah. Please clap. Please. And the seals and the, and the taxi just clap. Right? I do think he probably did say this is a BFD. Oh. <laughs> Delightful. Um, Tom Hartsfield is a Ph.D. physicist. There is no breakthrough. NIF fusion power still consumes 130 times more energy than it creates. So calm down. If you gave me $400 and I gave you $3.15, would you consider yourself wealthier? That's the financial analogy, analogy for the supposed fusion power breakthrough. And he provides some detail of what's going on over at the National Ignition Facility. Uh, the, in pursuit of fusion power technology. And nobody's 
discounting the pursuit of fusion power innovation and tech but but let's just be honest about where we're at versus these the press release politics you get from these political hacks um this hyped breakthrough yeah uh nif's laser fusion energy output jumped by 2500 percent a sign of a significant physics breakthrough on the crucial problem of thermonuclear burn this that was um last year this week's announcement is an increase in fusion energy output relative to laser energy output from 70 percent in 2021 to 154 percent in 2022 this in incremental possibly incidental progress toward uh, toward thermonuclear burn is not a breakthrough the facility has at last achieved slightly more fusion output than laser input ignition on paper, that's a major symbolic victory. In practice, it's of little consequence. Here's why. The laser energy delivered to the target was, I mean, without getting these well, some details, but anyway, you got to hear the argument. Yeah. You can read this at BigThink.com. The laser energy delivered to the target was 2.05 megajoules, and fusion output was likely about 3.15 megajoules. According to multiple sources on NIF's website, the input energy to the laser system is somewhere between 384 and 400 megajoules. Mm -hmm. So just giving you the data to get to the point. In terms of electrical power, the 3.15 megajoules creates enough power almost to operate a 40-watt refrigerator light bulb for a day. <laughs> Congratulations. It's a BDDL, yes. To, uh, yeah, BFD. BFD. Uh, to produce useful power, NIF would need to increase the fusion output of each experiment by at least 100,000%. That's an enormous scientific challenge to resolve before commercial operation can even be considered. So again, this is not anti-fusion power research or anti-research generally in the energy sector, of course. It's just let's understand where we're at and where we need to go before we're uh, talking about major policy breakthroughs or uh, feasible alternative energy sources. And, of course, you don't get that from these, you know, uh, uh, eco. Cable stations never even, never even said what it, how, what it created. They're eco propagandists is what they are. And it's just a little tiresome. And, you know, it's not like there is not a distillation of this these sorts of pronouncements like from Granholm out there to be had, but too few are intellectually curious enough to pursue. I, I suppose, particularly on the left, they don't need to, uh, Lewis Andrews. He's a Connecticut based writer who addresses politics, economics, and social policy from a broadly Christian perspective. And he's written a piece about, uh, energy policy and the, uh, contentious relationship between these eco alarmists and say the fossil fuel companies. Lewis Andrews joins us now. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. Good morning. Good morning. So, you know, I, you don't need to go down the rabbit hole I did with fusion power, but it's, it's, it's not about that power source. It's just about the um, purposeful misleading of the public by politicians like Jennifer Granholm. And of course they do that when it comes to uh, big oil as well. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, a little footnote here. The interest, most interesting thing about fusion power is that the best fuel for fusion is considered to be something called helium-3, which is a rare element on Earth, comes from the sun, and our atmosphere blocks it out. 
but the moon's surface is saturated with it. And uh, it may be that in the future, if they ever do get something out of fusion, it'll be because Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos brought it back from the moon. Oh, interesting. That is interesting. Well, there you yeah. go. Let's let's uh, let's be uh, you know explore the bounds of the universe and let's be creative and innovative and entrepreneurial. But um, but that's actually a, a real philosophical divide because those on the other side of this discussion see uh, our path through central planning. Yeah, you know what, what I was writing about and and uh, what you were referring to uh, earlier is the uh, I think the. There's a very strong progressive element in the environmental movement, and uh, progressives had a store have historically had uh, a real hatred of oil companies. I mean, this goes back to when John D. Rockefeller set up Standard Oil at the end of the 19th century. And so, what uh, the environmentalists do is they're, I think, using the environment as a way to go after the oil companies. Uh, to fund them in one way or another. And it's really a stupid thing to do because the oil companies are doing some really interesting things these days that can be very helpful with the environment. Uh, fusion being one of them. Uh, Chevron Oil is a big investor in fusion. Yeah, um, give us a couple of other examples because you provide them in your piece at The Spectator about what the big oil companies are doing in the in the area of alternative energy. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting things going on. I mean, there's what you know they call carbon capture, you know, which is Exxon Mobil is very invested in that, trying to find ways to take carbon emissions, you know, out of uh, oil and and uh, coal. Uh, there's something called hydrogen power, which is obtaining uh, fuel uh, from hydrogen from water. Uh, they can do it at the moment. It costs a lot of money to do it, but they're trying to get the price down. Chevron is very committed to doing that. Uh, British Petroleum, BP, has been very involved with getting um, what they call biomass, which is um, a gas that leaks from landfills that uh, is very low carbon. So the oil companies are doing a lot of interesting things. I was in uh, London last year visiting my daughter. She works over there. And uh, if you walk up and down the streets of London, you see these uh, charging stations for cars. Uh, London is, is, is pretty much ahead of this, of the U.S. in this. But if you look closely at them, they're all made by British Petroleum and Shell Oil. They've been wiring London uh, for uh, battery-powered cars. So it, it's really silly to try to defund these companies because – they're not oil companies; they're energy companies, and they probably understand more about producing energy than any other companies in the world. Well, speaking of electric cars, let's talk about California's legislature's plan to ban all gas-powered vehicles by 2035. First of all, is that feasible, and how is that wreaking havoc on the state's economy? Uh, well, you, you know, you've been hearing in the news over the summer uh, about all the brownouts they had in California because they tried to shut down uh, uh, nuclear power, and they've tried to shut down uh, uh, oil-burning utilities. And as a result, they, they don't have enough uh, energy to power their electric cars. Um, the uh, California environmentalists think that the energy problem is going to be solved by uh, putting windmills and solar panels uh, all over the state. But I saw an interesting statistic the other day that if you were going to meet America's energy needs with solar power and wind, 
you would have to cover a land mass equal to uh, the New England states, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio combined. And, and there's just not enough room for all the windmills and solar panels that would be needed. So, you know, wind and solar, uh, which the Californians, you know, are trying to move to, is part of the solution, uh, but so is uh, um, uh, carbon capture from um, traditional, you know, oil-burning uh, machinery and uh, biomass and hydrogen and hydropower and hopefully one-day fusion. Um, one of the concerns, though, even you're talking about some of the um... – uh, the, the sectors in which the big oil companies are investing, the alternative energy sectors. Concerns, though, is how much of that is uh, a belief in there's a real potential ROI uh, and how much of that is misallocation of resources incentivized by government policy, whether it's subsidies or regulations or threats of regulation? Well, you know, uh, I think the president uh, earlier this year passed what he called the Inflation Reduction Act, which was very badly misnamed. I mean, it was really uh, dedicating a lot of government funding to various projects in the environmental area. And I'm sure a lot we're going to discover two or three years from now that a lot of money was put into things that was a complete that were a complete waste. Uh, and taxpayers will probably lose trillions of dollars investing in things that aren't going to work out because they're going to be decided uh, by government agencies. Uh, the history of the oil companies is that they spend money very well. Uh, this doesn't mean that uh, uh, everything they do works out, uh, but that's good too because they're experimental. They're entrepreneurial. They're trying right. things. Right. So. Uh, I'm not saying that everything the oil companies are currently invested in, biomass, hydrogen, carbon capture, is going to work out. But um, uh, if I were a country that had some big oil companies uh, putting lots of money into trying different energy sources, that would make me happy. It wouldn't make me sad. He is Lewis Andrews, Connecticut-based writer who addresses politics, economics, and social policy from a broadly Christian perspective. Do check out his piece. How Hating Big Oil Undermines the Environment at The Spectator. We'll tweet it out. Louis Andrews, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. You know, we've got these spring school board elections. Yeah. I know it's the holidays. People don't want to pay attention. Still recovering from the November 8th election. And maybe I'll get to it in January and take a look at what's going on at the municipal level. Well, will you? Are you paying attention to school boards, uh, the races for school board? Well. Uh, as well as for municipal offices, or at least will you after the holidays? Let's hear from you. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. In some districts in Illinois, you have to register by December 19th uh, in order to... So each district's to, different. You have to file. You have to, to file, excuse me, to run. Yeah. And I have a candidate that I really want you to support, but we could talk about this later. But would you be would you be able to entertain a phone call with this person? It's a retired colonel, served the country well, is law and order type of person. Uh, no woke agenda. What district? Any means. District 21. What's that? Wheeling. Hmm. 
Sure, of course. Um, I want to update the story we brought you yesterday of uh, school board member and board treasurer Jennifer Solot. She uh, presided over a meeting last week for the Upper Moreland School District Board. That's in north of Philadelphia. And uh, there was a discussion about, uh, and ultimately a vote, to among the board to elect a school board president, president of the board. And uh, here's what she had to say in that moment. Having said that, I believe that Mr. DeLeo would make an excellent president. However, I feel that electing the only cis white male on this board president of this district sends the wrong message to our community, a message that is contrary to what we as a board have been trying to accomplish. I think that it's important that we practice what we preach and that our words have strength when they are spoken, whether we speak them from the neighborhood sidewalks or from behind these tables. Mrs. Steinbeck has done an exemplary job as president these last few months and the strength of her performance has earned her my vote tonight. Well, uh, would you like somebody like Jennifer Salad being uh, influential in your kids' education? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA and the quick comment. Obviously, they're trying to check a box and not trying to hire the most qualified person. Uh, Mr. D'Elia, the school board member, is a father of three who pre- previously served as an area school director. Um, yeah, but whatever. He's a straight white male. That's the end of the conversation. Uh, this video of her and that statement you just heard, that got around, as you would imagine, thus you're hearing it on our show as well. And uh, this week, uh, the superintendent of the school district issued the following statement. As a result of the incident, oh, they're calling it an incident, Ms. Solot has decided to resign from the board, effective January 2nd. She wishes to apologize for her poorly chosen words and does not want to be a distraction from the great things happening in our schools on a daily basis. The district thanks Ms. Solot for her five years of service to the Upper Moreland community as a board member. Apparently, a lot of those honkies in the Upper Moreland School District didn't care for Ms. Solot's standard when it comes to selecting a school board president. And so now she's been forced out. So, you know, it it there is engagement and it comes, but unfortunately people don't recognize maybe who's in charge until they say something so obviously inane as to disqualify themselves publicly and then quick action is taken so we can resume what we were doing with the likes of Miss Solot on the board. But the thing is, oh. she actually thought she was doing the right thing. She misses, you know, qualifications matter. She missed that whole topic, and she just um, was trying to be said, so woke. Wishes to apologize for her poorly chosen words. What do you mean poorly chosen? She communicated her position very, very clearly. It wasn't an excited utterance. It wasn't a, a slip of the tongue. It was a well-considered position that she's come to. That was succinctly stated, nothing unclear about it, and that she felt 
I, and I, would, I should say, I, I doubt that's the first time she has expressed what she thinks and I'm sure would say feels about identitarianism. So what's what Solod's gone and then if I'm a parent in that school district, I say, um, so what else is going on with that school board and with the administration and in the schools? If you've got somebody like her as an elected member, and by the way, nobody said anything, as I can gather, after her statement in support of the woman who actually won by an eight to one vote. And I have not there's no comment on the contest between the two school board members for board president. But I the, the one vote, I, I don't know if it was it was Delia voting for himself, the guy that she's the straight white male voting for himself that she said was disqualified because of straight white male. But probably. But eight to one. Um, boy, I, I would have, knowing nothing about either one of them, I would have voted for the guy just because of Solot, not without commentary on his opponent. But that's not what happened. So, gosh, I wonder what else is going on now that the surface has been scratched in Ohio. And But by the way, but this is, we, we want to bring you the story, just like we're bringing the stories about Loudoun County, because the uh, cop-out of, like, I can't do anything, no one will ever be held accountable— well, that's not true when you do have a parental revolt or even just parental engagement. You do see things happen in places like Loudoun County. It takes interminably long sometimes, like a year and a half to bring charges against that douchebag of a superintendent, Ziegler, in Loudoun County and the spokesman and to get some, uh, some, some modest form of justice for the family of Scott Smith, whose daughter was sexually assaulted in that high school and other people in that school. It takes some time, but it came and uh, maybe not as much as we would like, but there's something and the parents aren't stopping because, by the way, as Scott Smith tells you, it, it, they're not stopping on the administration level, pushing this identitarian woke crap either. So we're not stopping here in Upper Moreland, uh the Upper Moreland School District, north of Philadelphia, same thing. She says something inane. It could just people could just let it go. Ah, oh, yeah, that's just what they say. That's what they do. But obviously, there was a reaction, and now she had to resign. And you know that wasn't voluntarily. So okay, it does matter. And not to mention, I mean, what what is what we were talking about Elmhurst and the bathroom incident at York High School, and accountability there. And uh, where are where is the character formation among the kids? Where is the adult leadership from the school board or the administration, the community, the quote-unquote community that's so much talked about? Yeah. It's impactful. Or not. And so these moments, what do you teach your kids to do? How do you want your kids to be raised? Who do you want to be, have influence over them? These cowards who hide behind lawyers, who transfer their kid from a one school to another school because they don't want him to accept accountability for what he did in the case of the the, the uh, boy with Down syndrome was pushed around in that bathroom, and that was apparently the reaction of one family. How about this in Ohio? Ohio teacher is suing her school district after she was forced to resign because she wouldn't abide their preferred pronoun program. You know, she wouldn't, one of these stories that we've, We've presented many of them of I am not going to participate in lying 
and then they're summarily dismissed or pushed out by the school district, the college. So you want to see this continue to happen, or are you going to stand up, where, you, especially where it can have the major impact at the local level, and say, no, no, not doing that. You're not getting away with that. You're not going to steamroll over us. You, you, you misunderstand the power relationship between you and me, school board member, superintendent, teacher, and parent. It's a moment. A lot of other school districts around the country are having their moments. I wonder if any in Chicagoland will this come come this spring. Grant and Elgin, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning. Hi. Morning. Uh, I wanted to bring to light uh, the the local GOP uh, has just nominated Dr. Lori Parman uh, for school board, and she is 100% someone who is worth being on everybody's radar, uh, been in the system 20-plus years, and uh, she, a year ago, about a year ago, recently retired after the school uh, union tried to coerce her uh, into into giving up her vaccination status, and they were about to hold her retirement. Uh, hostage and then she retired and became one of the best activists I've ever known and I mean this lady she is a door-to-door um, door knocker and uh, and she is gonna uh, do everything in her power to unseat um, some of the evils that are going on on uh, some of those folks on the school board uh, in district 300 here can you tell and us her name again please a Dr. Lori Parman. Is she a medical doctor? Uh-oh. No, no, she then is. We'll, then, uh, yeah, then we'll just we'll just call her Lori. Let's just let's just yeah, stop with yeah. the doctor. Lori yeah. Parman. Yes. Yeah, Lori Parman. Yeah, the, yeah, that's, that's her. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> thanks for the call, Grant. No, right. no, I mean seriously, I'm, t- I'm I can't tolerate it anymore. Really? I cannot you're tolerate. That's your. That's your. You're done. I, I can't. Break. I just. I cannot. Doctor Joe Biden. Doctor this. <laughs> stop. Ridiculous. You can call me Dr. Dan. I've got a Juris Doctorate. Asinine. Knock it off. Lori. Dan. Jill. Uh, Mike Libertyville. You're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Or is it Dr. Mike? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Only in my own world. Good morning. So morning. I had a gentleman in Libertyville here at a coffee shop ask me to sign a petition for our local District 70 school district. And uh, the barista happily signed a few other people. He got to me, and my buddy sitting next to me says, uh-oh. So I say, well, great. What's your view on DEI? And the guy takes a step back and says, well, gee, I, you know, you're, you're going to have to tell me what that is. Right. Explain this diversity, equity, inclusion. Oh, we must be very inclusive, he says. But that's very important mm-hmm. to be inclusive. I said, well, that's great. I said, well, what about tampons in the boys' bathroom? And he starts laughing that, ha, ha, ha. Where does that happen? That's not happening. <laughs> well, it's everywhere. It happens. State oh, law. Well, right? Oh, I said, well, they're in the Libertyville Boys High School bathroom. Oh, come on. I said, okay, great. I said, you know, I'm an older guy. I walk into the Libertyville Girls High School bathroom. How quickly will LPD pick me up and escort me off the premises? He says, oh, that's such a contrived issue. If you don't want to sign the petition, just say so. And ran off. Yeah. Where does that happen? Oh, it's state law? Oh, 
They're just, they're just, well, they're just well, catching on. They didn't know that this was a state law for a few years. Well, he, but 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 that's the point. I mean, so 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 that's got that you know goof that Mike from Libertyville talked to is running for school board, and he'll be backed by the teachers union. It sounds like based on those answers, and he could win. And so, do you want that goof that Mike had to talk to at the coffee shop circulate while he was circulating his petitions? You want him to have an influence over your child's child's education? That's what we're talking about. Thanks for the call, Mike. Appreciate it. You know, by the way, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis, he spent time. He made the effort to uh, support school board candidates around the state of Florida. And he flipped a bunch of he helped along with obviously the candidates themselves and the local uh, campaigns and party helped flip a bunch of school districts. Charleston County, South Carolina, which is typically Democrat area, conservative candidates flipped the school board from Democrat control. Uh candidates voicing opposition to CRT pedagogy in uh, the state of Texas gain seats on the state's board of education. So, you know, we have these incidents that occur in the schools, and then you look at the leadership of the schools, you say, well, how do we get this leadership? Well, what's your level of participation? There, you know, these new Marxists backed by the teachers' union are real interested in the schools. So you best be too. Uh, Harry in Novi, Novi yep, Michigan. Novi. Yep. Yeah, hi. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Um, listen to you from afar uh, quite often. Anyway, uh, the point I wanted to make is that it seems the only real recourse, and that really needs to be pushed further, are criminal charges against these superintendents and school leaders. Uh, the case in point where he had the one sexual abuse student, I think it was in Virginia, yeah, I got that. moved to another district. Mm-hmm. And until we go after them with criminal charges that could turn into felonies and they lose their pensions, I don't think the message is going to get across. Thanks for the call, Harry. I'm, I'm going to make one addendum to my doctor. Oh, oh. Okay, Dad is changing his mind. How ladylike of you. Okay. I just I just wanted to it needs more texture. Yes, yes, please. You also call um musicians or athletes doctor. Um uh, I will accept that too. So you you okay. call so at Dr. medical J doctor's doctor. Still keep his name. Dr. J gets to be Dr. J. Okay, I'll let him know. Um, uh Daryl Dawkins gets to be Dr. Dunk. Okay. Uh or was that Wait, was that David Thompson? No, um, no, you were right. Says Mike Scott. Um, okay. I'm giving. I'm attributing. Um, uh, Doctor Dre. Oh, doc, he's a doctor. Okay. Um, Doctor John, Doctor John, doctor. Um, <laughs> Quincy John. is a doctor. <laughs> a trapper, John M.D. Doctor. Wait, fictional, <laughs> fictional medical Doogie Howser doctor. Oh, okay. So at so so medical doctors, fictional medical doctors. Mm-hmm. Athletes and musicians as their as their act name or nickname. Okay. No one else. All right. Thank you. All right, Dan and Amy, Chicago's morning answer. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM five sixty. The answer. This is Chicago's morning answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM five sixty. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Just since uh, 
we veered off into the discussion at the end of last hour about uh, titles. You know, the thing I cannot tolerate, which is the use of doctor to describe PhDs in education. Uh, every superintendent, school superintendent is a doctor. Doc, Joe Biden's a doctor. No, they're not. Yeah, they got a PhD. So what? Doesn't mean you have to refer to them as doctor. Couldn't help but think about. We didn't have time for it last last hour. The great parody ad that the Zucker brothers did against Barbara Boxer back. This is 2010. So think about this. Remember, she had that famous, infamous incident with a general who referred to her as ma'am. And she said, Senator, I've worked so hard for that. That was the jumping off point for the Zucker brothers out there in California to uh, to properly lampoon Barbara Boxer in a way that only the creators of Airplane can. My records here, General, seem to indicate the transfer of funds occurred during the previous fiscal year. Uh, Ma'am, at the LACPR is a... uh... Uh, You know, do me a favor. Could you say Senator instead of ma'am? Yes. It's just a thing. I worked so hard to get that title, so I'd appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Uh, Yes, of course, Senator. Much better. Thank you. You're welcome, ma'am. Oh, sorry. Senator, I can explain. Uh, U.S. military policy is to refer to all senior-ranking personnel as sir or ma'am, including members of Congress. Thank you, General Anderson. Uh, Major. I thought you were a general. A major general. It's just a thing. I worked so hard for that title. Uh, West Point, graduated top of my class, lieutenant, a couple of combat tours, captain, major, colonel. Okay, okay, I get it. You worked hard. I worked hard. Yes, ma'am. Senator. Yes. I'm in. General. So Major General. Gentlemen, gentlemen, please, please. Ow! Ow! Third doctor in the house. I'm a surgeon. That's three more years residency. I worked so hard to get that. Just put on the bandage. I got one. Oh, thank goodness. A scout. Eagle scout. I worked hard for that. I know, I know. You worked so hard to get that freaking title. Order. Order, please. Excuse me, officer. Captain. Police captain. I worked so hard for Miss Fleming. Judge Fleming. I worked so hard. Hello, Red Cloud. Chief Red Cloud. I worked so hard. Take many scalps. Hasn't Senator Boxer worked hard enough? Maybe it's time to give her a rest. I don't understand. Senator, while you're waiting, I have the president's new $900 billion stimulus bill for your signature. That I understand. We've called her senator for nearly 20 years. It's time to call her ma'am again. Mm. And uh, instead, we've gone off the rails in the direction of deference to experts with titles, haven't we? Well... For more on, not on this topic, but uh, we're going to talk to an expert on the topic of COVID. We're pleased to be joined again by Dr. He worked so hard, he earned it. Now, real doctor, medical doctor, Dr. Marty Makari, professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and Bloomberg School of Public Health, chief medical advisor to Sesame Care and author of the award-winning book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. Dr. Makari, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. Good to be with you. Yeah. Um, all right. You, uh, I, I was sort of almost amused and saddened at the same time. This story out of Bloomberg News this week. People are long social distancing. Long social distancing due to COVID-19. Economists say it's contributing to a drop in the labor force participation rate. I don't know if that's true or not, if you can necessarily make the nexus. But um, the arguments that are being made by the Covidians to maintain the 
uh, mitigations that were imposed over the last three years have in part to do with long COVID, not long social distancing, but long COVID. The fact that if you you still need to prevent from infection, prevent from getting infected, if you get infected despite the vaccines, there's still this problem of long COVID. And so uh, like they're they're advising in L.A. County right now, put your mask on and get your latest jab. Well, Dan, I don't get fired up about much, but let me tell you, the untold story of the pandemic is how it's affected poor and minority communities. And the only people who are doing this long distancing are the people wealthy enough to do it in public in their uh, employment setting or something like that. And then they go back to their social groups and their country clubs, and there's no long distancing going on there. I went to about seven doctors conferences over the this year. None of the doctors were long distancing or wearing masks with very few exceptions. So if the doctors groups, including the American Society of Hematologists, which they're a group of doctors that take care of even those suppressed patients oftentimes, if they are engaging in hundreds of people shoulder to shoulder without masks, what does that tell you about what's going on with this virtue signaling? I I think we just got to use common sense. We got a bad flu season now. How about some common sense? Mm-hmm. And um, what, so what does common sense mean? What would you somebody said, what, you know, Dr. McCarty, what, what I'm you know, being told by public health officials at the county to do X, Y and Z. What should what should I do? What should I do to keep my kids safe in school and our family safe at home and all those things? Well, um, first of all, get the flu shot. And that applies to children. They can get it as well. Number two, if you're sick, stay home. Number three, if you have any symptoms, you, you don't have to get hyper tested doesn't really matter what you have. You've got a virus and you shouldn't be coughing or sneezing on other people, which means if you're in public and you've got symptoms because you've got to be there, wear a high quality mask. The cloth masks don't really do much. So those are some basic strategies. But the idea that somehow we got to stomp this out and eradicate viruses from planet Earth is a never ending strategy. COVID zero doesn't work. So it's inevitable, but we can still use some common sense practices to protect those who are vulnerable and slow the transmission. Does it strike you at all uh, ironic that uh, the Chinese communists are relaxing COVID restrictions, even as places like L.A. County are attempting to reintroduce them? Well, um, the worst thing you can do in public health is have restrictions beyond when they're absolutely necessary. We've done that over and over in the United States. And three years into this now, people are waking up and they're saying, really? The, the Biden administration wanted to keep masks universally as a requirement to fly on an airplane. They, they lost that battle in court and in the public sphere. And what happened? People start dropping dead in planes? No. People had social interactions. They enjoyed their travel more. We have an epidemic of profound social isolation. And in kids, it's manifesting as anxiety and depression at epidemic levels we've never seen before. So we've got to consider the pluses and minuses of having a public health restriction. I want to get your reaction to this uh, study that came out from the Commonwealth Fund this week that's being much touted by the press corps and, of course, their favorite son, Tony Fauci, that suggests that uh, the vaccine saved 3 million lives and and prevented 66 million infections. And that's an update from just March of this year, when the same organization said at that point in March, it had the vaccines had saved 2.2 million lives and prevented 54 million 
infections. Uh, there's a lot of question about the uh, robustness of the methodology that leads to those conclusions in this study. Well, I think one of the biggest problems that our public health officials have created is we have no good measure of COVID mortality because they lump in those who died from COVID with those who just happened to have a positive test when they died from something else or the COVID had a small part in the mortality. So when you, ha- when you don't have a good measurement, how on earth are you extrapolating these numbers? Ask these authors, ask them, hey, how did you calculate, how did you get a number on COVID deaths? And they'll tell you, oh, we pulled it off the Johns Hopkins tracker. Or, you know, when you ask a, a school board person, why are you going back to universal masks in school? How many healthy children have died? Not overall children. Healthy children have died from COVID. No one can give you that answer in the United States, if any healthy children have died. And there probably have been a couple or a dozen, who knows, but we don't have any numbers on that. So if you don't have numbers and you don't study vaccine complications, how do you have such a fervent vaccine requirement in young, healthy people? That's what is so frustrating with this whole thing, is we have bad numbers guiding public policy, and that's not a mistake. That's probably by design. Uh, we do have some numbers. I, I just want to go back to long COVID. I was remiss in not referencing the piece in the journal that you wrote about it, uh, trying to tamp down some of the fears associated with it. We do have some numbers on the incidence of, of quote unquote, long COVID lingering, sim- lingering symptoms and effects of being infected. What are they? Well, the CDC touts that 20 percent of people are going to get long COVID as if long COVID is a lightning bolt that's going to strike people randomly. That's going to, it's going to that is as if it's going to strike a fifth of Americans randomly and make them permanently disabled. The number out of the UK was 3%, not 20%. That was a better study. And the newer research that I outlined in yesterday's Wall Street Journal shows that if you didn't have COVID, if you had something else like a flu or some other upper respiratory infection, you had the same rate of long haul symptoms. Long haul is not unique to COVID. It's just after being sick and it's proportional to how severe the illness was. So as COVID is now less severe, we see far less long haul symptoms. And but Fauci and the NIH are obsessed with studying long COVID as if it's the only COVID topic worth studying. It's almost essentially magnifying it. So they've exaggerated it in its prevalence rate. And they poured one point two billion dollars of research into it, which has yielded nothing for the poor patients suffering from it, but yielded millions for this MRI hospital testing industrial complex. One study tested everything you could possibly test, every blood test on a group of COVID long-haul symptom patients, and found all every single test was normal. The only predictor of long COVID was having anxiety before you had COVID. So while Fauci and the NIH are obsessed with studying this and throwing over a billion dollars at this long COVID issue, they've spent almost nothing on studying masks, vaccine complications, natural immunity's ability to protect against severe illness, whether or not Paxlovid works in vaccinated people, uh, the impact of obesity on COVID outcomes, whether or not vitamin D helps. We got that study a couple 
weeks ago that shows vitamin D lowers COVID mortality. Why are we getting that three years into the pandemic? Hmm. So it's, it represents the weaponization of research, how they pour so much money into long COVID. Do, does, do, do things at NIH and CDC get better when Tony Fauci leaves at the end of the year or uh, the, the train just continues to rumble in the same direction? I'd like to hope things are going to get better. I'm not sure they could get worse. I mean, Tony Fauci's he's made several mistakes, some of which I think are forgivable, forgivable, but personally. But one thing that is just inexplicable is how they could spend $1.2 billion on long COVID research and yet not fund one randomized trial on the new bivalent vaccine. And instead, they rule by opinion rather than funding the appropriate research to answer the big COVID controversies in real time. They didn't do that. They didn't do it when they thought it was surface transmission. They could have done the research to tell us it was airborne. Instead of ruling by dogma on masks and so many things, do good randomized trials on different types of masks and provide that research. In the absence of that research, what we had is a void that was filled by opinions, and that's how COVID became the most politicized and controversial public health topic in, in centuries. Excellent point. Excellent point. Dr. Marty McCary, he is a professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and Bloomberg School of Public Health, chief medical advisor to Sesame Care, and the book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. Dr. McCary, thanks so much, as always, for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you, Dan. Thanks. And Dr. McCary was with us on the Turnkey.pro Answer Line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Hallelujah! Holy s***! On AM560. Where's the Tylenol? The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. You know, on the Twitter files... There's a lot of things that were unearthed we haven't even gotten to yet because we've been so focused on the, you know, the key topics of the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story and the uh, shadow banning or outright uh, or the, the visibility um, massaging of conservative talkers and so forth, the banning of Donald Trump and A uh, Twitter tweeter named Avid Hallaby tweeted out a very interesting thread that provides a lot of detail that suggests that the internal controls at Twitter under Dorsey and then Argawal were arguably slightly better than FTX. He starts, the stuff uncovered in the Twitter whistleblower report is much crazier than anything in the Twitter files. But it's much less politically tribally salient, so it got no attention. There's whistleblower report versus the you know files that are being funneled through uh, journalists like Taibbi and Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger. Twitter didn't monitor employee computers at all. It wasn't uncommon for employees to install spyware on work devices. Twitter does not have separate development, test staging, and production environments. At least 5,000 employees had privileged access to production systems. And he's got the excerpts from i'll retweet he's got the excerpts from the uh, whistleblower report here to substantiate the summary in 2020 twitter had security incidents serious enough that they had to be reported to the federal government on an almost weekly basis and meanwhile uh, 
Parag Agarwal was lying about how secure Twitter was. On January 6th, the whistleblower wanted to take action to prevent potential sabotage by a rogue employee. He learned it was not possible for Twitter to secure its production environment. The whistleblower realized that a data center failure could potentially cause the permanent loss of all Twitter's data. He shared this fact with senior leadership, who instructed him not to put it in writing to the board. A few months later, the exact eventuality almost came true, and only a Herculean effort by Twitter engineers prevented, quote, permanent irreparable failure, unquote. Twitter had no software development life cycle and misled both the FTC and its board about this fact for a decade. This whistleblower informed the previous CEO, Argwal, that there were thousands of failed login attempts to Twitter's engineering system every day, and the CEO did nothing. Twitter did not keep backups of employee computers. They used to, but then the system broke, was never fixed, and execs decided this was good because it meant they couldn't comply with regulators. And so on and so forth. It's just one sort of uh, example of corporate malfeasance after another. I just find you know find this interesting as since since under those CEOs and all of the blue check leftist mafia types, this was the portal through which democracy was going to be protected. For more on all of this, the Twitter files related and whistleblower report. Since I've raised it, pleased to be joined again by James Bovard, member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, author of Lost Rights and nine other books. James, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me back on the show. Um, you had, I mean, if you want to comment on the uh, the sort of corporate governance and day to day management of the of Twitter, I, I think that's as interesting too. And I'm surprised Elon Musk isn't saying more about this. It's like what I inherited and why these people needed to go just on the basis of sort of systems and work performance. Yeah, it sounds like a very interesting story I'm learning about as I listened to you this morning. Okay. Um, Well, uh, this is a topic of uh, additional thought and consideration that we'll explore. Um, You took up another angle from the Twitter files that has been underreported as we were were all talking about those top-line matters that I I previously mentioned, and that's the impact that uh, Twitter's content moderation policies, as they call them, had on mail-in ballots, and thus the 2020 election. Yeah, there was a huge effort uh, by the Department of Homeland Security, a new agency that had been created as part of that DHS in 2018, gave grants to a bunch of uh, uh, nonprofits and uh, 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 companies tied to universities uh, who, who then basically carried out the federal orders to pressure social media to suppress any criticism of mail-in ballots from mid-2020 onwards. And because that was their number one target, I think they understood that if Biden was going to win, it was going to be because of a massive number of mail-in ballots, which was the case. Almost two-thirds of Biden's votes came from absentee or mail-in ballots. And so you had these these federal contractors pressuring social media, Twitter, Facebook, and other places to basically suppress any criticism of mail-in ballots. I mean, and part of the paradox here is if you just uh, turn back the clock to before 2020, there were all kinds of controversies about uh, mail-in ballots. The New York Times had said that mail-in ballots were a far greater source of fraud than the uh, than voting in person, uh, there was a federal commission co-chaired by Jimmy Carter in 2005 said the same thing. 
all these bright red warning uh, signs about mail-in ballots and fraud, but all those signs magically vanished in uh, mid-late 2020 when uh, those ballots gave Biden the presidency. Yeah, that that's uh, a key point you make here, too, just going back the record. And, you know, it used to be well understood because it sort of stands to reason. You don't need to be an expert in election administration to understand that there are more fraud opportunities with absentee and mail-in ballots than with a physical person in front of you voting. And and so and that that played itself out. Um, and you remind us and you remind us, number one, that you weren't allowed to say what The New York Times reported a decade earlier. And and as you say, these commissions had concluded and so forth. That was all washed away. And um, we need to be reminded about how many ballots were not counted, spoiled uh, in swing states like Nevada and Wisconsin in 2020. Yeah. And there were all kinds of rule changes that were unconstitutional, which basically lowered the standards for verifying those absentee ballots. You had the Secretary of State of Michigan, on her own authority, send out 7 million absentee ballots to every voter in the state. The, 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 uh, it's clear in the U.S. Constitution that the laws for, that the uh, procedures for federal elections need to be uh, um, um, uh, set by the state legislature. So, but throughout, in a number of states, uh, those, uh, the uh, election rules were set by uh, a bunch of judges or a bunch of political appointees or just by string polling, and that uh, was a violation of the Constitution. There was a big push to have the Supreme Court issue a clear ruling on that. Didn't happen, so we might be seeing the same kind of uh, fierce controversies uh, for the 2024 election. But this is also tainted because you've had Biden out there screaming Jim Crow 2.0 right. any time that uh, some state tries to make, uh, you know, have a little bit higher standards to verify the ballots. Right. No. And even Raphael Warnock essentially repeated the same claim after his on his uh, uh, during his victory speech on uh, election night in the runoff just last week. I mean, just just because I won doesn't mean that voters aren't there's not still voter suppression afoot by Brian Kemp and the Republicans and and the Donald Trump Republicans and so on and so forth. And so these are this is the way we're going to save our democracy by making our uh, elections demonstrably less well, secure and honest. Uh, and accurate. Honest. How about honest? How about we go with honest. the word honest? honest. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there were so many scams that have been done. I mean, ballot harvesting has become prevalent, and so you have people going door to door and just asking people to sign the top line. You know, uh, um, just to sign the top line, say you're voting for Biden. There, uh, don't worry about the rest of the ballot. We'll just put this back in the bag. Thanks. There's uh, you know, a chain cookie. of custody. Yeah. A chain of custody of ballots has been completely disregarded, and it's almost like every ballot's supposed to be uh, supposed to be treated like it's uh, handed down from Mount Sinai. But you know, this isn't how the game works, even in Chicago. <laughs> well, here's the concern that uh, I have too, because after what happened at the midterms, you've got a lot of calls from Republicans to, you know, hey, look. The vote by mail, it's a real thing. Those are the rules of the game. We've got to play by the rules of the game in the states where they have, you know, six months of early voting and, and, and ballots being distributed willy-nilly it, everywhere. So that's the rules of the game. So we've got to do the same thing the Democrats are doing, essentially, is the argument. And, you know, it's persuasive, and I understand why. The rules of the game, so, yeah, you've got to maximize your opportunity to win according to the rules of the game. But 
where do those rules of the game, you know, somebody's got to think, where is that ultimately going to put us? How does this end well if this is a contest to see who can engage in dishonesty the most effectively? Absolutely. I mean, it's it, um, it's so sad to see a lot of the standards that had been um, developed over half a century or a century to have honest elections have been just completely thrown out the uh, thrown out the window, starting with covid. And now you got Biden, a lot of the Democrats trying to make a lot of those changes permanent. But it, it doesn't matter how many extra people vote if the um, if the votes are fabricated. And and at the federal level, I mean, you, you don't want to throw out the standard there and say, well, like, like the left attempted to do, but didn't have the votes to eliminate the filibuster they wanted in the Senate to federalize elections, to just essentially strip the power away from the states. Now they're trying to do the same uh, in the Supreme Court with that North Carolina gerrymandering case. But but you don't want to do that either because you want federalism. You want decentralization. You want elections to be state and local matters. So then you're left in this sort of nether space. We don't want the federal government to do a takeover. Um, we want things to be uh, run as honestly as possible. We don't want outside money funding private uh, pri- private money funding you know public election administration offices like we had with Zuckerbucks. Um, but so what do we do about Wisconsin and Arizona and Nevada and some of these other states that? Uh, on, on which federal national elections turn that have so many questions surrounding their the election administration. Pennsylvania, throw that in, too. Yeah, there, there's so many controversies, so many scandals. It's frustrating that most of the media has had very little curiosity about the nuts and bolts of the changes that have been done for elections. Uh, they've made it much shakier as, as, far, as far as results. Uh, and this is the same media, much of the same media that was happy to howl for three years about how Trump was, uh, you, you know, a Russian tool based on false allegations in 2016. So it's just, it, it's hard to see a happy ending for the way things are going. Yeah, yeah. He is James Bovard, member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, author of Lost Rights and nine other books. Uh, do check out his column we were uh, discussing on the Twitter files and the impact uh, or, or the description, what they reveal about how, uh, mail and ballots have become sacred uh, now just after one or now two cycles. Jim Bovard, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And he joined us on the Turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.